see you all here this morning. Warm enough for you? <laughs> yeah, it is nice in here. Amen. <laughs> uh, as always, the offerings in the uh, in the box. Andrea's number. Days of praise and acts and facts are here for your use. So take advantage. Thumb through those. They're they're a good benefit. Anything that isn't in the bulletin this morning that we need to remind ourselves of? Guess not. All right, I'll jerk. Nobody wants to get on a roof in this heat anyways. <laughs> Give it another week. Give the guys a break. <laughs> Great. All right, then. Uh, I'll direct you to Galatians, the fourth chapter. Read 21 through 31, 18, 14 in the Pew Bible.
stand together and ask the Lord to bless us as we meet together. George, would you lead us today? Thanks. Will you take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number 355 in the red trinity, 355.
Scripture reading this morning is taken from Genesis, the 17th chapter, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 16, page 22. 
When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male young you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her, her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. May God bless the reading of his word. Will you take your brown hymnal this time and turn to number eight? Number eight in the brown. Say again, dear. Number eight. Eight. Number eight in the brown hymnal. <clears throat> right toward the, toward the beginning.
Our text this morning is Genesis 17. Our last study concentrated on Sarah's solution to her barrenness. The oriental custom of producing heirs through surrogate mothers or lesser wives was well known to Sarah and so she proposed to Abram that he marry Hagar, Sarah's servant, and any children resulting from that union would be credited to Sarah and Abram. Well, we find that Abram agreed. But this solution, and I put it in quotes, was fueled by impatience. Not only in the sense of waiting, but also in the sense of not trusting God to keep his word in his own way, even if it meant delay. It was a move of desperation. By the way, being desperate is not applicable to God. He's never desperate. Why should he be? What he wills, he accomplishes. And no one thwarts what he wants to do. Any other view of God is not the God of the Bible. If you think men can manipulate God some way or interfere with his plan, or his purposes, then you don't you're not reading the Bible. You're not understanding that God. What is more, Sarah's solution was one of human ingenuity. Yes, Abram was still reproductively viral, but God had plans for a miracle child to be born to Abraham and Sarah, and not a child of Abraham's own reproductive capabilities. I think sometimes we miss out on the blessings of God by settling for our own natural remedies. Hagar the Egyptian represents the world and the flesh, what man can do and does do in defiance of God and without acknowledgement that God is the supreme ruler and the supreme manager of all of life. Hagar, too, was found by God in the wilderness and promised that her son Ishmael would become a great nation as well. Now, he was not. He was not the miracle child that God promised Abraham and Sarah, but he was Abraham's child nonetheless. So God blessed him as well. Two lessons we learn. Number one, even faith-filled believers can act in unbelief as they grow weary of waiting for God. I call it impatience. And secondly, the best, the best solution that we contrive for our perceived problems 
can end up with regret. We think we have it, we're locked down, and then it goes tilt. Not happen the way we plan. Well, today's study is transitional. It, in this sense, both Abram and Sarai are given new names resulting in new gains. And as we come to this study, let's seek the Lord's enablement. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. And this uh, patriarch couple have a lot to teach us because of what you taught them. We look at their lives, but we look at how you dealt with them in their lives. And we are reminded that God is in control of all things. And we need to keep that before our thoughts concerning ourselves. When we become desperate, when we become impatient, when we become in a hurry, we are forgetting the fact that God is in control. But you are in control. You're always in control. You're never lost for an answer. You're never deprived of a solution. And we need to see that and believe it with all of our heart. You don't hang your people out to dry. You don't desert us to the whims of wicked men. We are to trust you and to exude faith in you. And not revert to our own devices. Help us to see these truths today as we look at this wonderful couple in the Old Testament and the lessons you taught them and through them the lessons you can teach us. Bless and honor yourself in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking at the concept of new names resulting in some new gains for Abraham and Sarah. The text is Genesis 17. In this text we see that the exalted father. That's what the word Abram means. Becomes the father of many nations. That's what the name Abraham means. Verse 1 tells us. That this occurred when Abraham was 99 years old. That's a long time to live, 99 years old. My dad lived to be 100. Y'all remember that? I shook my head at that, you know. Nothing in himself, but solely the grace of God. Well, Abram is 99 years old, and this is 13 years after the birth of Ishmael. So Ishmael is a teenager. More than another decade of time has come and gone, and still Sarah is without a child. And if you look at verse 18, you will see that Abram is still holding out for Ishmael to be his heir. He's not quite getting it, is he? If only Ishmael might live under your blessing, he says to God. And God responded, yes, but 
Your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. Now it's getting to be a little more personal with God and Abram. Because Abraham isn't getting it. People put names to things that are realities. And so God moves from promising a son, a son, a son is coming. To you will call him Isaac. Same certainty that God gave to Hagar. Chapter 16, verse 10. Thirteen years earlier. You will have a son and you shall call him Ishmael. Name attached to it. Chapter 15, verse, excuse me, chapter 16, verse 15. So Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram gave him the name Ishmael, which means God hears to the son that she had born. Now, same thing comes when we come to the New Testament announcement of both John the Baptist and Jesus. Here we have the account of another old and childless couple, that of Zechariah, who was a priest, and his wife Elizabeth. As he served his turn at the altar of incense, the angel Gabriel announced to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Luke 1, verse 13 and following. Further on in the same chapter, again, Gabriel makes another announcement, this time to Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Luke 1, verse 31. Matthew records a similar promise to Joseph. Mary's intended husband, where an angel spoke to him, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, which means Savior, because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, verse 20 and 21. Now, the obvious indication in all of this is that when a name, a name is given to a yet unborn baby, who in that day and age, the sex of the child was not known. But when that name was given, that child must be inseparably linked to the promise of God, who not only knows all things, but orchestrated this to be, so both God's omniscience and God's omnipotence are at play here. He knows and he does. And the combination of what God knows or declares with what comes about, in this case the birth of a male heir, Ishmael to Hagar, Isaac to Sarah, demonstrates to all reasonable men cause and effect. Cause and effect. This didn't just happen. 
Ishmael, however, was a son conceived by Abram with Hagar through the normal means of procreation, whereas Isaac is supernaturally conceived, means the use of God's promise or gift without Abraham and Sarah's procreative powers being the governing factor. No. Paul states it this way. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. I'm reading scripture. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. Galatians 4 verse 23. More detail is found in Romans 4. Which reads, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so he became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. Yeah, 99. 99 years old is about 100 years old, right? Way to go, Paul. And Sarah's womb was also dead, we are told. Yet the text goes on to say he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Romans 4, 18 through 21. This is marvelous when you think about it. The scope of God's promise is found in our text, verse 3 and following. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Genesis 17, verse 3 and following. By the way, the same promise is essentially contained in what God said about Sarah. Verse 15 of Romans. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Which, by the way, means princess. Her name shall be Sarah, noble woman. Oh, wow, what's the shift there? Well, nobles, what? Have great contracts of land, acreage, estates. Sarah is going to be viewed as a noble woman. He goes on, I will bless her and will serve certainly give you a son by her i will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations plural 
kings of people will come from her. I love this. Both of these name changes indicate a new life for the patriarch and his wife. By the way, Abram and Sarai are Chaldean names. That they, those are the names of their pagan past. Whereas Abraham and Sarah are their covenant names. Names that God himself gave them to emphasize that they were his and he was theirs. Wow. Look at verse 7. Oh, and by the way, God chose a new name for himself. Not Jehovah, not Adonai, which means Lord, but, verse 1, El Shaddai, God Almighty. God Almighty. Thereby saying to this couple, verse 2, I will confirm my covenant between me and you. That is, nothing God has promised will fail to come true for you because God the Almighty will accomplish everything he has promised you. I read that and I think this must have been a welcome message after 20 years of waiting, waiting, waiting. For God to keep his promise of a child. The wait has been great. But it comes with great gains. What are the great gains? Well. New names be speaking of their princely positions. A new resolve of commitment by God to give Abraham the land of Canaan. And be the God of his descendants. You'll find that at verse 8. God the Almighty. It's going to take God the Almighty. To oust those already living in the land. They're not going to give it up willingly. Circumcision. Covenant sign. That signified the cutting away of the old and sinful flesh. Leaving in its place a new nature. That would produce people who would love God and obey God. Verse 1. Walk before God and be blameless. Several people in the Bible have this history attached to them. This is the account of Noah. Reading scripture. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless. Blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Genesis 6, verse 9. Job, chapter 1, verse 1, describes Job. In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil, which means he walked with God. David, 
The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, says David. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept his ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the crooked you show yourself shrewd. Psalm 18 verse 20 and following. Or again Psalm 119 verse 1. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Okay, question. What is meant by a blameless life? In Hebrew text, the word means to be whole, complete, person of integrity, whose life is in accord with the truth, in accord with facts. Coming into the New Testament, the Greek, blameless means to be faultless, not in the wrong. Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian brethren was this, May he, God, strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes with his holy ones. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 13. Now blameless is not a synonym for sinless. For there's none of us who does not sin. Even Paul. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, says Paul. Sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do it. But what I hate, that's what I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. That's his blameless nature of his new life in Christ shining through. He goes on, as it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me, and I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I, but I cannot carry it out. Romans 7, verses 14 and following. The biblical characters whom God labeled blameless, there's a number of them. Noah, Job, David, Paul, and others were not sinless men, but they were blameless. In this sense, 
Their goal in life was to live for God and to walk with God and to obey God's law. Being men of integrity or truth and men who, like Job, shunned evil rather than indulging it. Now, were they always successful in their walk with God? No. But even then, when failure was evident, they took the rightful course of action, namely confession and seeking God's forgiveness. Only blameless men do that. David is a good example of his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. He tells us, I acknowledged my sin to you. He's talking to God. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32, verse 5. This is the action of a blameless man. David knew his behavior was a violation of God's moral law. He knew he was guilty. He didn't try to hide it or candy coat it. This is why God labeled him a man after my heart. He will do everything I want his, him to do. Acts 13 verse 22. In contrast to King Saul, you remember, whom God replaced with David. Circumcision, a cutting away of the fleshly part of the male reproductive organ was to indicate that for Abraham his true descendants would become those who walk before God Almighty, verse 1, in a blameless manner. So when the Pharisees claimed that they were Abraham's children, the word they used was the Greek word tekna, we are Abraham's techna, his children. Jesus recoiled at that saying, I know you are Abraham's descendants. He uses a different word here, Greek word sperma, from which we get the word sperm. I know you are Abraham's sperm, his biological offspring. Yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen from the Father's presence. And you do what you have heard from your father. Well, Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, techna, Greek word again, if you were his child, with that as with the nature of the parent, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. And as it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God, and Abraham did not do such things. John 8, verse 37 and following.
The children whom Abraham produced and continues to produce are people with a circumcised heart, a heart that, like David's and like Father Abraham, seek to walk before God in a blameless manner. Anything less is a phony. The Pharisees were phonies. Yes, they had the mark of physical circumcision on them, but their hearts were full of murder towards Abraham's true heir, Jesus Christ. Wow. I think that's scary. We can be religious. We can be temple worshipers. We can go through all the motions and yet be enemies of the God we say we love. So the first game <clears throat> that Abraham exhibited was a circumcised a circumcised heart. A second gain in this restatement of the covenant, Abraham is told both the name and the time of the promised son, Isaac. Twenty years have come and gone while Abraham and Sarah have waited and waited and waited for God to fulfill his promise to them. No particulars have been disclosed until now. Verse 19. Your wife Sarah will bear you a son. You will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him and an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Now here again, the giving of the name Isaac personalizes the promise and assures them that God is working his will as he had promised them. It's not just a son, a son, a son is coming, coming. No, you are to look for Isaac. Now we're getting personal. Now they have a name for the baby boy on the way. Oh, and how many years will have to pass before Isaac shows up? Oh, wow. Verse 21. My covenant I will establish with Isaac from Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. I read that and I thought, yeah. I'm thinking of this couple, and I'm thinking, what a welcome relief, what a welcome encouragement that must have been for Abraham and Sarah. Because they're used to waiting decades on God to fulfill his promise to them. Oh, is it going to be? <laughs> we know we're 99 years old and 90 years old here, Lord. This promise of this Isaac guy that's coming, our son. Uh, how long are we going to have to wait? Well, no more 10-year increments of time. Just one more year. And the two of them would receive God's promised child. What a gain this 
was over the years of silence, the years of waiting, 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 the years of trying to hurry the event along, even though Ishmael was never that promised son. Oh, by the way, speaking of Ishmael, there's new data concerning him. Verse 20, I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. That's the old news. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. This is the new news concerning Ishmael. Let me read it again. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. If you check Genesis 25 verse 12 and following, you will find a genealogical list of Ishmael's 12 sons. By name, listed chronologically from the oldest to the youngest. Twelve princes in all. And the epitaph inscribed by Moses tells the fulfillment of God's prophecy. They, Ishmael's twelve sons, lived in hostility to all their brothers. So not only among themselves, but hostility towards their half-brothers, the descendants of Isaac. These hostilities between Arabs and Jews are as contemporary as our day and they demonstrate once again that God's word is true regardless of the passing of time. God does not age nor does his word age. This is so because God always tells the truth and the truth is timeless. Contrary to the subjectivism of our day in which people believe that truth is kind of relative and that you are responsible to make up your own truth. You don't like somebody else's truth, just make up your own. You don't see truth as being objective, absolute. Well, this brings us, secondly then, to spiritual gains and spiritual realities. Abraham's blessing is to the world. Really. In God's original announcement of the covenant that he made with Abraham, he told the patriarch back in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Wow. Genesis 12, verse 2 and following. So even at the get-go, before Abram left his pagan idols and his pagan country of Ur, God promised to build a nation from him. But even more memorable, he promised Abraham, you will be a blessing. And then God told him the scope of the blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth. Not just Jews, not just Arabs. Well, is there, is there a third category that would include people unrelated to Abraham and Sarah or unrelated to Abraham and Hagar? I mean, all people on the earth, that's inclusive. It's global. It's not provincial. 
It's universal, not partial. It's integrated, not racial. Wow. Note verse 27. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Genesis 17, verse 27. Verse 13, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Genesis 17, verse 13. This opened the door for Gentiles. Do you realize this? Who have no biological connection to Abraham. On judgment day, Paul tells us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 and 11. Note that the criteria by which all of us are to be judged is what Paul calls good or bad. And not as men define these things, but as Christ the judge defines them. Well, who then would ever be able to pass such scrutiny? Paul continues, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Whoa. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And we implore you in Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and following, said to the Gentile Corinthians who were pagans at heart. If a person is in rebellious state towards Christ, then yeah, the tribunal before his throne bodes an ominous outcome because as scripture says it's a fearful thing. To stand before God. The writer of Hebrews says a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's why it's fearful. But for those who have been made 
who have made their peace with God through faith in his son's atoning work. Reconciliation is the result. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, I'm reading scripture. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. You think about this, this is a great heritage that God gave to the world through Abraham's son. Not Isaac, not that son, but the one whom Isaac represented. It says, Paul, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers, let me take as an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case the promises were spoken to Abraham, to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, meaning many people. But it says, and to your seed, singular, meaning one person who is Christ. Galatians 3, verse 13 and following. And verse 29 of that same chapter says this. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. I love that. And heirs, according to the promise. Galatians 3, verse 29. The third category constituting Abraham's descendants are all those believers who constitute the church of which we read there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, verse 28 and 29. Abraham blesses the world through his seed, not Isaac, but Jesus. Jesus. Our best posture then before God is one of faith and submission. Not promoting our own agenda. How many ways, how many times must God say something to us before we believe it and obey? 
Every time Abraham and Sarah got antsy about their childless situation, not having an heir, they tried to rectify their dilemma through their own wit. They did. They tried everything they could come up with. Chapter 15, Abraham said to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is this Eliezer from, from Damascus, which was one of his servants. It goes on. Abram said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will become my heir. He's, he's, he's thinking, you, you can just see it. i got to do something. God isn't doing anything. He's letting me down. I don't have an heir. I just got this servant. He's a great guy, but he's not a son. I guess he's going to become the heir of my estate. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Genesis 15, verse 2 and following. Next chapter, chapter 16. We find Sarah's solution. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. So go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. By the way, this is perfectly permissible in Old Testament times. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Genesis 16, verse 2. And Ishmael was conceived and birthed as a result of that union. Chapter 17, God again appeared to Abraham, changed his name to Abraham, and again reiterated his promise, verse 16, I will surely give you a son by her, the her being Sarah. Now wait a minute, he already has Ishmael. You mean that's not good enough? No, I will give you a son by Sarah. And what is Abraham's response? Verse 17, Abraham fell down, fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? He goes on, will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abram said to God, oh, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Not his best moment, by the way. He's having his doubts. 
The reality of old age has set in. Let me say that faith in God is subject to growth. It is. God seldom deposits all that he wants us as believers to be in one lump sum. It doesn't happen that way. This is because we learn from our mistakes if we're true people of God. Abram is pushing for Ishmael to be the heir. Why? Well, because Ishmael is there. Here he is. He's a reality. And he's truly a son of Abraham. Yet he was a son by Abraham's own procreative powers and therefore had nothing to do with God's promise, grace. I mean, you ask yourself, if you can do for yourself, do you really sense any need for God? Let me tell you, that's where our entire world is. That's, that's it. The atheists, the agnostics, the phony Christians. They operate on the principle that I'm master of my own destiny. I don't need God. But despite Abraham's continued push for his own agenda, listen to God's response, verse 19. Yes, but. But what? Ishmael was Hagar's son, not Sarah's, as promised. Ishmael was conceived by Abraham by the power of his own flesh. There was nothing miraculous about that conception. But your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son. That's what the promise was. How did that get missed? You will call him Isaac, which means God laughs. Yeah, God laughs at the poor substitutes we propose over his will. Our agenda looks wise to us, but faith believes. Commit to the Lord. Whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. Proverbs 16, verse 3. Again, Solomon reminds us, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Why should we prefer the Lord's plans over our own? God tells us, this is great news. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope. Plans for a future. I'm reading scripture. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me. You'll find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, Jeremiah 29. Verse 11 and following. Oh, sounds like it's better to follow God's plan than our own. 
Good planning will rely upon our own understanding, yes. Faith reaches out to God and believes that he who knows the end from the beginning, he whose intentions are for our good and not harm, he who controls all the variables of life, has a plan that brings hope and happiness not only for today but for tomorrow as well. And Abraham had to learn the hard way. God has a plan. May it be easier for us to learn from his example. Finally, let us consider that it is only circumcision of the heart that enables a person to walk before God and to be blameless. Jesus put it this way, the spirit gives life, the flesh, that counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are spirit, they are life. John 6, verse 63. Paul writes it this way, it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has really given us. This is what we speak, says Paul. Not in words taught by human wisdom, that would be the flesh, but words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. Does not accept them. For they are foolishness to him. Boy, that's true. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. That's the limitations of the flesh. Why can't he understand? Because they're spiritually discerned, and he doesn't have the Holy Spirit in his or her life. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things. But he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For we who have known the mind of the Lord, who has instructed him, the scripture says, but we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9 and I suppose that sounds pretty arrogant to a person that doesn't know the Lord. You Christians are saying you know the mind of the Lord. Well, we're not saying it. The scriptures are saying it. And it's not magical. We can read the scriptures, which is the word of God. And the spirit who resides within us gives us an understanding. To think God's thoughts. To make decisions that honor God and promote righteousness among men and allow us to walk blamelessly in this corrupt world. Again, Paul says, Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we, we have 
the mind of Christ. It's part of our salvation. God gives us a new heart, a new mind. We praise him for that. Lord, we just thank you for your word. <clears throat> we thank you for making our lives such that you have drawn us into reconciliation with you. We were not always in that position. There was a time in our life, <clears throat> excuse me, when we were hostile to you, not reconciled, your enemy instead, strangers to your grace. We fought you, we didn't love you. We didn't walk blamelessly, we walked in sin, and we loved it. We just as soon spit on you as to do anything. But you came and you changed our heart. You drew us by the power of the Spirit of God. You used the Word of God to show us our sinfulness. You granted us faith. We praise you for it. You drew us like a magnet. You drew us into a love relationship with you. The world can't understand us. While there is no understanding apart from the Spirit of God, we know it was a miracle. We are miracles of grace. You changed our heart. You gave us a new way to think. You drew us unto your Son and showed us that we needed forgiveness. You made us a child of Abraham. You made us believers. Believers, not skeptics. We thank you for that. We pray for any here today that are still in the skeptic category. We pray that you will Indeed, draw them. Grant them the faith they don't have, the repentance they don't have. Bring them into your fold, we ask. For your glory, Lord, because you are glorified. Every soul that's saved, you're glorified over that, but also for their good. There's no better good that could come to a person here this morning than to come to know God in his saving power through Jesus. Honor thy word, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone have the closing hymn? What is it? 34 in the Trinity. 34 in the red hymnal. Okay. Find 34 in the red. Will you stand with me, please? <clears throat>
Our Lord, we're thankful and appreciative that you are still the same God, the God of Abraham that did so marvelous things with him in his life. You're still the God that is enabling us to believe and obey and live in such a way to testify to the world of your grace. Help us to be faithful in that. It's not a little thing to be called the children of Abraham. This one who, whose faith is stellar and an example to all that believe. We are his children. Paul tells us so in Galatians. Those of faith are of the seed of Abraham. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to live in such a way as to testify to the world that there's more to life than just making a living, buying a new car, getting a big house, having lovely clothes and all that. Though all those things are going to perish one day. They're destined to perish. You tell us so. I pray that you'll help us to put our anchor down in those things which really count. Not the things of this world, but the things of eternity. To the praise and glory of the Savior who has gone there to prepare a house for us and will come again one day to receive us unto himself. Thank you, dear Lord. Amen. Amen.